Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto Podcast. This is episode 44. And on today's podcast, we have a very learned young man, Dr. Nicholas Norwitz. Now, Jackie got talking with him. She was clubbing in the clubhouse again, where she's finding loads of our sort of most recent guests. And tell us a bit more how you got chatting with Dr. Nick. Well, actually, I first heard him on another podcast. Uh, in two episodes on the Low Carb MD podcast. And then I saw him in Clubhouse. Because I've heard, I'd have heard i heard him speak, I thought, yeah, he would be a good guest for us. So uh, when I saw him speak, I just said, will you come on our podcast? So there we go. Here he is. And as we'll hear, his, not only his health journey, but certainly his academic and future medical journey that will really inspire, hopefully, the listeners to... Here is our shining new hope. I feel like we're lifting him up as young Simba, you know, to the in the Lion King as a as a bold new hope. So, Jackie, why don't you tell us a bit more about Dr. Nick? So, Dr. Nicholas Norvitz is an atypical guest. He's only twenty five years old, but already holds a PhD from Oxford University in ketogenics and brain metabolism. Works as a keto coach and a metabolic health practitioner conducts clinical research, writes papers and lectures on the international stage and is now pursuing his MD at Harvard Medical School. But Nick's academic credentials are only a small part of what makes him interesting. He has his own incredible story of struggling with metabolic diseases. We discuss his personal history in this podcast along with Nick's thoughts on medicine, healthcare, education and nutrition. Let's hear more about Nick's journey. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto Podcast. This is episode 44. And today we have an exciting young guest, um, Nick Norwitz. And we are, well, like we start every episode, tell us where in the world you are, Nick. Thanks, um, Jackie and Louise, for having me on. I'm really excited to, to be here and talk. I am um, I'm in Newton, Massachusetts. So kind of outside of Boston, about 20 minutes uh, outside of Boston. Right now I'm in my friend's basement because there's construction going on in my house. So there's noisy background. And <laughs> um, where I am in life, which is probably more the point of your question, I just finished my uh, PhD at Oxford University in ketogenics and neurometabolism. And I'm starting at Harvard Medical School for my MD. So doing the PhD MD. Um, so I'm in this nice little break now because I finished my PhD up early and I'm 
just having fun getting engaged with the ketogenic and low carb community via all different little projects, which we can talk about. But uh, that's big picture where I am now between a PhD and medical school. You're very busy. Yeah, busy as well. But will you be Dr. Dr. Nick? Um, yeah, I, I guess in a sense. Um, He'll be Dr. Dr. Nick. Dr. Well, I guess I'm Dr. Nick already with a PhD, but with a DPhil, I guess it's at Oxford. I always say PhD, but then the Oxford people correct me. Um, yeah, but I have to go by Dr. Nick because when I hear Dr. Norwitz, I think about my father. So <laughs> I don't think I'll ever have patients call me Dr. Nick. I mean, Dr. Norwitz. <laughs> Dr. Nick. Or just Nick. Uh, so, so your dad was a doctor as well, was he? Yeah, he's an OBGYN. So, so um, yeah. did you always think about becoming a doctor? Was that from young, that's what you thought you'd do? Or did you did it come about later on? It was always it was always what I wanted to do. Always my default. So like, I, I thought about this question when I was preparing to apply for medical school. Uh, because they'll inevitably ask you, like, why do you want to be a doctor? Or like, what made you want to be a doctor? And for me, it's it sounds kind of boring to say my parents are doctors. Like, it made sense. I didn't have a transformative moment. Although I did actually after getting into medical school, we can talk about that. But it was for me like a scientific approach. Like it was my null hypothesis, it's default. And then I just started engaging in activities to see like, does this fit me? Do I like it? And everything I did from doing the research to engaging with patients, because I do work as a metabolic health practitioner to, I mean, just everything um, made me realize like, this is absolutely what I want to do, but also evolve my model in terms of like, how exactly do I want to be a doctor? Because now I realize I don't want to just be in the standard medical system where you're forced to see patients in like 15 minute blocks and just rail through people. So I have a little bit of a different perspective now, given what I've been through on the, you know, what, what's great about conventional medicine and, and what is lacking and how I can kind of help evolve the system and find my own niche therein. So Jackie asked you about why did you, or how and why you became a doctor, but in actual fact, you are a doctor. So was this in terms of the question that Jackie was asking, how you came into, you know, into medicine? Did you really always want to do medicine? Because really your mm -hmm. academic career is, is now in, you know, moving into, into medicine. So you're moving from yeah. an academic career into practice. Right. But I, um, that's true. But if you, I, I can detail the timeline, I actually got into medical school. I applied to medical school straight out of undergrad. And it just so happened that when I got into Harvard Med, I also got a scholarship to go to Oxford. Um, and so I had the money. So I asked them if I could defer three years. So I was accepted a while back. And so I was doing my PhD over at Oxford, knowing that I go clinical. But when I was applying, I thought, you know, I could just go in, if I don't get money to do a PhD, I'll just go do an MD. And I can always do research on the side because I do have that intellectual side of me. But um, it turns out that I got funding. So then I ended up just doing that first by happenstance, being a little bit of an opportunist. Right. That's absolutely, what a wonderful like opportunity to, to live and study in the UK. Um, it was great. Yeah, for, for those years. So, so mm, Absolutely. You know, having your, your study abroad experience, extended study yeah. abroad experience. Oxford is just the best. It's an academic theme park. And the graduate community is so international. Like the people you meet, are just wonderful. I made so many good friends and uh, yeah, just a lot of fun. So before we get more into your journey as being a doctor, perhaps we could go back and you could tell us a little bit how you came into your ketogenic way of eating 
And who was the one, well, we say it could be a person, it could be a thing, it could be a podcast, it could be a book. Who was the one that got you to, you know, really look into this and change your way of life? Yeah, um, that that's a, that's a long history. I'm going to give an abbreviated version because uh, I, I can point people to resources where my, my story is linked. But uh, briefly-ish, because I know I'll never be brief on this. <laughs> I was I was ostensibly a very healthy young person up until like age um, 18. So during my entire youth, like I was athletic. I ate according to the dietary guidelines, like lots of healthy whole grains and fruits and, and um, you know, relatively low fat diet, although I did indulge, like I just had high energy needs, but I was skinny. I was lean. I played soccer, basketball, did martial arts and ran. And so up until age 17, there was really, I had no problems. Didn't go to the doctor for anything other than like a flu shot or if I had a sniffly nose. But uh, about a year after I got into running, um, distance running, I started developing fractures um, and they weren't really typical. So it, it wasn't something congenital in me because my first year of running, I was, I ran 3000 miles that year. I was running hundred mile weeks, no problems whatsoever. Um, but hand in hand with my, you know, increased energy expenditure, I was increasing energy intake, you know, to fuel. So my fuel was things like, you know, tropical fruits, cliff bars. I got back from a run. I'd like, you know, basically drink half a jar of Nutella or a whole jar. Like I ate a lot. Um, and, and what I realized now weren't the greatest foods, although the market is healthy, like nutritionally complete cliff bar, look at all the vitamins, like eating this mountain of fruit, et cetera. Um, that said, after about a year of running, I, uh, I got this stress fracture in my right tibia, which isn't that atypical. This was me training for, I was the youngest qualifier for the 2014 Boston Marathon. And I talked more about that in uh, another podcast I just did, I think it was Boundless Body. So that's actually a really interesting story, but I won't delve into it here. Um, I, I fractured my tibia training for this, this race about a few, a few weeks out um, from the start of the race. And I was bummed. Um, so I ended up doing that race in a little bit of an unconventional manner, but thereafter I wanted to get back into running. So, you know, you're supposed to let your bone heal up and then you get back. And I tried that, but the bone wasn't healing. And then I couldn't get back into it. And eventually when I did, it was like, I would get more fractures, but at lower thresholds. So before I could run a hundred mile week and that was fine. Then I couldn't run 40 mile weeks. Then I couldn't run 20 mile weeks. And then I got to the point where even during a single 5k run, this was a couple years after I started developing fractures, I just shattered this bone in my foot, uh, a blockish bone in the middle of the foot that you're really not supposed to be able to break, at least according to the orthopedist who saw me, because what he said was, I've been doing this for 40 years. I've never seen someone break a bone like this. At that point, I asked, can I please get a DEXA scan, a bone density scan? Because I've been begging for that for multiple years, but nobody would give it to me because they said, you're a young, healthy guy, normal BMI, normal testosterone, like weight-bearing activities, no family history of osteoporosis. You wouldn't, like, there's no way you have low bone density. But at that point, we did get a DEXA scan and it revealed I, I did have osteoporosis, like full-blown negative 3.3 T and Z scores in my spine. And, um, uh, you know, scans reveal that I had fractures in my tibia and my femur and my hip, little ones in my spine too. 
it was quite extreme. And uh, there was really no answer forthcoming, no serious answer. So that was really hard for me as someone who identified as an athlete to give that up because effectively I did have to give up running at that point. Hmm. Um, but I came to terms with it. I thought it was a one-off until a few years later, still eating the way I ate, I started to develop gut issues. This is at the end of college. I went to Dartmouth college and I remember, you know, um, when the art ulcerative colitis started to set in late junior year and into my senior year. And that, if I thought the osteoporosis was bad, the colitis was, it was worse because as anybody who with an inflammatory bowel disease knows, it makes food and social life a real struggle, if not a terror. Like you're afraid of having a flare in any social situations, at least to some degree, at least to me, and like agoraphobia and the food that I used to love, because I was always a foodie. I love to cook. I, even in high school, I cooked dinner for my family. I came to the point where I, I, I ate to fuel my body, but it was, I just, I did not look forward to eating. It was kind of a terror for me because I knew how I would feel afterwards or how I could feel. Um, and then there were just a lot of, you know, graphic episodes that I can go into that I won't right now, but just about fear of having an episode during a public event, like speaking in front of 11,000 people. Like I want to do it. This is a great opportunity. What if I have a, a, a flare like in front of my whole school in front of like, and this is at graduation, but it was really terrible. And then I graduated. Uh, I went to Oxford and things got really bad. The, the shit hit the ceiling. If you want to be punny about it. Uh, and my flares got worse. I started dropping body weight like crazy. I just couldn't stop. I lost 15% of my body weight within a few weeks. And there was a time when the university rushed me in an ambulance at 2 a.m. to the hospital because I had severe stomach pain where it was incidentally noted. I had a heart rate in the twenties. Wow. So I was um, brought in as an inpatient and they ended up putting me in a palliative care ward for three days after which I was discharged again with no answer. So there wasn't a clear explanation for the osteoporosis or the ulcerative colitis or this really weird bradycardic episode that was so extreme. 28 was my heart rate at admission and discharge. Um, my mom even flew over because she thought I was dying. And she's an MD too. Actually, both my parents are doctors. So like they were both very worried and, and that was scary. And it was at that point that I started to take a little bit more responsibility for my health. Um, not something I wanted to do, but yeah. as a, as a kid with parents who are doctors, who, who's grown up in an environment, you know, believing doctors are almost omniscient at some level, like they know everything about the body and health, they should be able to fix you and thinking, geez, my, I, I've seen the best experts in the world at like Harvard and Oxford and elsewhere. And I'm still sick. And I didn't believe that I could do anything about it. Because what, like, you know, at this point, I, I am, you know, a college graduate, and I'm doing my PhD, but like, compared to the people I've worked with, I know nothing, like, it's just arrogant of me to assume that I can help myself. Mm. That said, nobody has more motivation to help myself. And when you're hopeless, you're also desperate. And so it's like, all right, what are my options? What I'm doing isn't working. So I'll just grasp for straws, like I'll do everything I can to um, fix myself. Because I don't do it. I don't, at this point, I don't think anybody will. And it's a really hard feeling, especially being young and 
and wanting to believe in a paternalistic medical system that can just take care of you. Like, here's your solution. I really want. But we sort go ahead. We sort of want, we not want, we expect doctors to be able to know what's wrong with us. Yeah, and that you you that's an expectation, and then when you don't get that, so for example, I had um, and I have had um, gallbladder attacks. And I went to a specialist and he said, your only option is to have your gallbladder out. And I thought, how can that be my only option? I don't believe it. I said, OK, thank you very much. And I walked away and I still now, 18 years later, still have my gallbladder because I had to take it, take everything into my own hands and work out why I was having them, what was stimulating them what was making them happen and what could I do about it yeah no I I there definitely is that desire and that expectation and I think it's it's because health is really hard and scary and it's it's easier to point the finger at someone else either that or you know it, it bottom line I think it's an unfair expectation of physicians to know that everything about biology and about health and nutrition it's just it's it's frankly unfair and that sucks. And people don't want to hear that truth that that there isn't always an easy solution or even a present solution or, you know, a, a way to understand what's going on. There's always hope. Now I believe that. And we can talk more about that. But uh, coming to that realization, that truth, uh, and also trying not to be bitter about it. I see this so much in social media. People who have stories like mine, because I am not by any means unique in this. And then say things like, like, you know, doctors are just trying to make money. Like, they don't want to help you. Like, they're not thinking about you. They don't care. Like, they absolutely care. Everybody I met really wanted me to get better. They really did. And the fact that they didn't have every bit of knowledge in the universe to fix me is, it would be unfair to assume that they did. But did they admit that? So at the time, say you're discharged in the Oxford Hospital and they on admission your heart rate was 28 on discharge it was still 28 did they really say look we're scratching our heads and please come back to here's your outpatient's appointment you know is there a sense that they admitted to i don't have all the answers but we will look into that together that's that's where i you hit the nail on the head there that's where I evaluate a clinician's quality because over my health history, I've had clinicians that um, basically said that, like, I don't know. And that was the most wo actually wonderful thing for me to hear. Um, and then they listened. Those are the same people that like listen to me and entertain my hypotheses. So for example, um, I, I think I was misdiagnosed with the etiology of my osteoporosis. I'm not going to go into that now, but later down the road. And at this point, I was a kid. I mean, I'm still a kid at some level, but like 17, 18, I actually put together some uh, evidence. And I'm like, does this make sense to you? Like, I, I really think there's something there. And guess what? These really like high up doctors within the Harvard partner system, they said, actually, no, I, I we buy it. And we ended up publishing a case report on that together. Like, they really listened to me, even though that I, I think maybe they would disagree that they were wrong at the beginning. They really did listen to me, and I give them credit for that. Um, and then there are other doctors who are really egotistical, and they 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 don't want to listen. And the heart rate one was an example of that. that was, it's one of the only times I'm actually bitter about the health care I got. So in that circumstance, 
I was discharged under the auspices that my bradycardia was due to uh, turmeric poisoning. So the spice, the spice turmeric, what they said was, we think, or there's a particular attending who I won't name, said, we think that, you know, the curcumin you're taking, which is the active component of turmeric, uh, contribute to your bradycardia. Now, that hypothesis was based on an isolated case report out of Mexico of a acute turmeric poisoning, in which case the bradycardia, I forget exactly what it was, but it was not that severe. It was not in the 20s by any means. Plus, I've been taking this chronically for months, um, prescribed or recommended by my GI doc because it's anti-inflammatory. I was taking at a standard dose, safe dose, 1.5 grams twice per day. Um, again, chronic, not acute. And I have been an inpatient for over 72 hours by discharge. The half-life of that compound is six to seven hours. So there's not going to be any left in my blood, yet I still have bradycardia. And I pointed that out to them. Like my brain was not being perfused basically by blood. And I even said, like, this doesn't make sense. And I can still pull out my iPhone and have the energy to type in what is the half-life of curcumin. It doesn't make sense. Nevertheless, they they didn't listen. They said, this, this is what we think it is. Uh, and they signed the discharge forms. Actually, they, I basically forged my discharge form. So the, they put the heart rate up in the forties, which is still low, but it, it would suggest an improvement. And, and um, yeah, my, my parents actually got really frustrated about that. We tried a lot to get accurate records. Uh, it was like after they fed me and then I, like went to the bathroom, which was really a struggle for me at that point to just get up and move. And like right after getting to bed, they took like an isolated heart rate and it had bumped from 28 to 42. I'm like, oh, discharge. That was a scenario where they just didn't want to listen. They wanted to get me off their plate. So that's a minority scenario. But, you know, clinicians do differ um, in terms of their quality. But talking of clinicians, having two parents, well, both your parents being doctors, hmm? You know, I'm. You know, how were they in your journey in terms of being able to, you know, think about your care? You know, this is obviously you're not their patient; you're their son. So, how was it for? I can imagine for them. You know, you're going through these particular episodes of the osteoporosis, the ulcerative colitis. Obviously, you know, in a foreign country, um, that must have been quite quite terrible and harrowing for them being equally frustrated in, in not getting getting any reasonable answers yeah i think i mean it, it tore them up and it tore them up that being mds that they couldn't help either for the most part they they didn't have an answer because of of their their training and their specialties um my dad's an OBGYN, brilliant md phd mba Rhodes scholar one of the smartest people i know and um, my mom's also an MD, PhD, and uh, she's a psychiatrist, but it's just like, there wasn't a forthcoming answer. And even they, 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 you know, in terms of access to resources and, 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 and experts, they had those connections. And that was the thing. It's like, we're going to find you the best people because we know the best people. And so that was their role, more or less. It's like, all right, we're going to get you with, you know, the head of pediatric endocrinology at, uh, you know, Boston Children's and stuff like that. It's a wonderful, wonderful woman, by the way. But um, so they, they, they hooked me up and, and keep that in mind when I'm talking about like, I still didn't get fixed. And, you know, they, they, they didn't have solutions either. And I think that was really hard for them. Um, and, you know, they expressed it differently, but I know it was hard for them. Um, 
and it was hard to see that too at a, at a point in my life when I, I don't know, I, I, at that, that ends or, you know, when I hit that rock bottom, we can talk about coming up in a minute. Cause I'm, I, I said, I wouldn't make this shorty story. I, I said, I wanted to, I said, I wouldn't. And yeah, we've, we've done that, but um, I was being pretty philosophical and it was the, really hard to see my parents suffering. Like I didn't want them to see me suffering. In fact, I was furious at my mother when I was in the, the hospital and she was trying to come over. I'm like, dad, do not let mom come. I do not want to see her. I do not like, and I, when she got here, I gave her the cold shoulder, which is horrible of me as a son, but I, I just didn't want to, her to see me in a bed, like emaciated, all red and puffy with a heart rate in the twenties. Like to do that to, a, it was, it was, it was hard family dynamic, but, um, yeah, they cared a lot and they did everything that they could to support me. And I was, I was still, yeah. I'm yeah. sure she wanted to be there I though. Because I, mm. I know as a mother. As a mother. You will want to be there wherever it is, whatever time yeah. of day, wherever in the world you'll go. Yeah, she just got in a red eye as soon as she heard and got over. And she's like, I'm not taking no for an answer. I was angry, but. I yeah. Didn't. Yeah. yeah you'll I, understand I think... when you're a dad. Yes. <laughs> So Jackie and I, being both mothers of of young mm-hmm. young men, um, you know, my boys are adults, um, yeah, adult adult young men, and Jackie's have just turned eighteen. So we, I'm sure that both of us would have been on a plane, you know, there. So, but I, I, yeah, I, there's a tension there for for your mom, you know, in the fact that she's a you know, not only is she a doctor, but she's obviously, you know, she is she is your mother, you know, and that's really her. It must have been a real tension for them. That's really what I'm just thinking, that they're desperate to help you both as a parent. And also, you're right, they facilitated your care. They did the best parenting they could by giving you the best care, by you know facilitating those accesses to, to those other providers and networks. Yeah. So as we promised, um, dear listeners, we will put Nick's... Um, the, the YouTubes to, to, so you can actually hear more of his story, um, because, um, uh, we really want to get on to this next chapter of your journey. So well, let's hear um, how he, how he came across yeah, keto. About, yeah. So this is really the next chapter for you that you're, um, the light bulb moment. Yeah. So, um, light bulb moment was lo- long in coming, but yeah, after, after becoming kind of hopeless and, uh, and I went from conventional medicine to the fringes of medicine, quite honestly, not because I thought it would work, but because I just didn't have another option. So at least as I saw it, so I experimented with things like, you know, supplements and weird exercises and, and lots of diets. Um, I didn't really believe in the power of a diet to cure what I was going through, which is naive thinking about it now, but I experimented with every diet you can imagine. So for um, gut issues, specific carbohydrate and low FODMAP are pretty typical diets. So I tried both of those. Um, I tried Mediterranean. I tried uh, like vegetarian and vegan, like all that. And the one diet I really didn't want to try or I had a bias against was a ketogenic diet because of just everything you hear in, uh, in, in media. There's that visceral, it's not even intellectual. Because I could actually look at the studies and think, oh, maybe there's something to it. And that eventually did get me over the hump to try it. But there's that visceral reaction because you've internalized this message that you just keep being fed about like, you know, fat is bad um, because it's going to clog your arteries, X, Y, and Z, eat like a low fat, whole food, plant-based diet. And even when you're looking at the literature, and at this point I was, 
there's still that visceral reaction to it. It's just like this, 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 this can't be right. This can't be right. Um, that said, like I said, I was pretty desperate. So like, Micah, what do I have to lose? Uh, even if my arteries clog and I die at 45, it's better than living what I have now. So let's give it a whirl. And you're right. Um, Luis, for me, and maybe I was a strong responder, but it was a light bulb, life-changing moment. Like within a week, my inflammation markers were down. I had more energy. I had no symptoms of colitis, like at all. Like the bleeding just stopped. And I, I felt on top of the world um, compared to, you know, I wasn't back running marathons or anything um, like I was a few years prior. But the shift from being in a, you know, really struggling to get out of a hospital bed and then like waddling to the bathroom to, oh, like I wake up and I'm energized and like I want to go to lab and do work and think. My brain was on fire. It was great. That shift was just phenomenal for me. And I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that something happened. Uh, and that's all I cared about at that moment. But at that moment, I thought, I'm just, I'm a weirdo. Like, I'm a weird in a lot of ways. Nobody's been able to fix me. I'm a medical zebra, so to speak. Um, and so I responded like a medical zebra. Uh, and this is a powerful tool for me. I, it works, but it's still weird. Then, Another light bulb went off, a much brighter light bulb. Um, and that's when I started to really engage in simultaneously the literature on ketogenic diets and low-carb diets and in the community. And I sound like a broken record saying this because basically on every podcast I say this, but the most unique thing about my story and my journey is, or the most remarkable thing I should say about my story and my journey is that it's not unique by any means. I manifested metabolic disease in a weird way, also to colitis and osteoporosis at a young age, but that was just because of my personal dispositions. But I see now everybody manifesting metabolic disease, you know, in a slightly different way. And then going through this story of struggling within conventional medicine, really becoming hopeless, and then finding something else that works. And often that is low carb ketogenic diets. I'm not saying that's for everyone, but based on uh, the, you know, literature, we can talk about that a little bit. It's probably a very good option to try for a lot of people. And so then they try that and I try it and it helps them. And then they realize like me, oh, wow, there's a ton of other people having the same experience. So why the heck did I suffer? Did they suffer for so many years and have to become sick and hopeless before this is provided as an option? And that's all I want is that, you know, I could have gone to a doctor years before as a kid and said, oh, there's this ketogenic diet thing. We think maybe for these reasons, it could be an option. Are you interested? Just lay it out there. Hear those words. I had, I had seen dozens of doctors and never heard that uh, until I started looking into it. And then um, I think you asked before, you know, who is that one person that enabled you? And there was a doctor, Dr. Vivian Lowe at the Transform Institute um, near where I live. And the funny thing is she, I heard about her through my dad who had gone to her for weight loss because she runs an obesity clinic. And at this point, the last thing I needed was weight loss. But he said, she's an integrated thinker. Um, you know, and, and although your case isn't typical for her clinic, like you just might have a good time talking to her. I think you guys think alike. So I, I came to her and I brought some ideas 
And, and she agreed that a ketogenic diet might be a, an option to try. Um, and it was having that uh, figure, that role model or, or leader in a sense, because I, I still feel like a, you know, a young person who's uninitiated in terms of medicine. I feel like I need a clinician's permission. I don't actually believe people should. Um, but I, I'll just tell you how I felt at that point. I felt like I needed someone to sign off. And she said, give it a whirl. And then I went whole haul. Um, so that's how I got into it. And yeah, it's, it's, and now I, I could not be, I'm, I'm grateful for it. Let me put it that way. Like for everything I went through, because adversity tends to have a second chapter, which is growth and, and a redefined purpose. And, you know, if I had just gone to medicine, never struggled with this, I would have probably perpetuated the system as it is. And there would have been a lot of suffering that I can't see. Now I feel very um, sympathetic and empathetic to patients going through these metabolic diseases that quite frankly, we are not addressing. You don't have to believe that I'm right about keto or low carb, but you better believe that what we're doing is not helping diabetes or Alzheimer's or obesity, because that is abundantly clear. So we have to think about things differently. We need to think about things differently to fix these. And, and now I kind of have a sense of, of how to think about it differently based on my experience and what I've read, what I've published and who I've engaged with. So going back to your Mediterranean, vegan, vegetarian, was had you dabbled in the literature making those sorts of decisions when you sort of moved through those particular ways of eating? Yeah, I mean, to the extent that I could. Um, and when I say that, I mean, you know, at this point, I, I'm still struggling with like poor brain perfusion, trying to do a PhD while doing other stuff. So like time was relatively limited. I didn't, before I started each of these diets, become an expert in any of them by any means. I read some of the literature for a lot of the plant-based stuff, say it was like the epidemiology or even just like blogs and stuff and try to piece it together. So I had a good understanding. And with every single diet, I tried to make, you know, this, this steel man approach for it, so to speak. Like I said, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to, you know, commit to it for at least three weeks. And if there's a problem, I'm not going to say it's the diet. I'm going to say, maybe it's how I'm doing the diet because you can do any diet, good or bad. You can have a vegan diet that is based on purely Oreos. You can have a ketogenic diet that's based on cheese whiz and store-bought mayo. You can do any diet poorly. And I was very aware of that. And so I, I, I really tried with each one. Uh, it just so happens that the, the ketogenic, and I don't think it's just so happens. I don't think it was a coincidence, but ketogenic diet really worked for me. Um, and I've troubleshot it ever since because little things crop up in here and there, but it's usually not the diet itself, at least with respect to keto, but something else, something that you just need to optimize for yourself or just some little quirk. Yeah. We all, we all have to make mm -hmm. it our own. We do. And, and, it, and it changes and evolves. I mean, I was just thinking, given that you're a scientist, a research scientist, I could, I could imagine that you had your lab, your lab book open and you would have been detailing the methods and the, the instruments and, oh, you yeah. know, those sorts of things. I, I, that's how I sort of envisaged you. Oh, yeah. No, I go to the lab and, like, draw bloods. My thumb looked like Swiss cheese because I was poking for glucose and ketones all the time. At that point, I didn't have a continuous glucose monitor like macros and not only macros, but like micros down to the 0.1 gram. Like I was intense about it um, because I just, I needed all the data uh, on myself and to integrate it with what I knew. So yeah, no, I was very fastidious. 
But you were doing the research as well, so mm-hmm. at Oxford, which was which was on what? Which was on what? Neurodegenerative disease. Here's the here's the irony. The irony is that I went to Oxford before I had my bradycardic episode. I had already applied, um, uh, you know, knowing that I would be in the lab of Professor Kieran Clark, who developed the um, Delta G uh, exogenous ketone ester. And I had contacted her because I had read about it with respect to exercise physiology as a, a sports supplement. And I was a very sporty person. So that intrigued me. And I loved the paper that um, Cox had all wrote in Cell. So I went there and we were um, looking at using it in Parkinson's disease, which is what part of my thesis was on. So I already knew a little bit about it. And despite that, we were looking at a, a ketone supplement, but even despite that, I was thinking about it is this is so niche. Like, okay, we have this cool supplement and maybe you can do something in this single disease, Parkinson's disease. I didn't even think about connecting it to what I was going through, which is really funny if you think about it. Maybe I'm just really stupid, but um, I didn't think about connecting it. So when I came to a ketogenic diet, it was via a parallel path. I understood some of the, the physiology and the, the, the uh, metabolism behind it, but it was the life experience. It wasn't actually the research. Uh, I would say it's not, it was 90% the life experience. And I still had that bias. Remember how I said, I, I read the literature, like I'd read the literature on keto and there was still that, you know, internalized visceral reaction to the concept of a high fat diet, at least for me. Uh, and even, you know, the patients that we were going to run in the clinical trials, we weren't putting them on that diet because quote, and at this point, I actually believe that it's like, oh, it's hard to sustain or it has negative outcomes. So we want this supplement so you can you know, get keto without actually having to go keto, which I, I don't really believe anymore. But um, yeah, so that's why I went what I was studying at Oxford, ironically. Yeah, I thought maybe you'd gone into that because of your experience, but it, it sort of ran a parallel path. Yeah, I mean, I evolved what my thesis ended up looking like based on that. But yeah, that's. That's and, and uh, something one would assume. Oh, he did a you know a PhD in, in ketogenics. Like he must have you know done that after he went keto. I was like, no, actually, I was I had just started that, and it was completely parallel. So that was just a life coincidence. Yeah, it's funny how the universe sort of you know brings brings <laughs> all these things together. And after finishing obviously your PhD, and you've returned back to the US to to um, you're having a bit of a break before medical school. That's going to be, you know, an interesting challenge reconciling the medical sort of orthodoxy with, as you said, you know, being the the love child medical zebra that you are. Um, how do you sort of foresee the next, is it graduate medicine? So it's four years for you now? So Four years of med school, then there's like residency and fellowship. Um, so probably, yeah, four, eight years before I'm practicing and I'll, I'll see what that looks like. But that's the timeline. Yeah. Do you have a um, an idea of where you want to end up in terms of a specialty within the medical profession or how do you see that? I'm hoping that finding out at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll do med school and then um, probably a residency in something like endocrinology or internal medicine, something that thinks systemically or neurology, because I always want to, you know, involve the brain. And then maybe then there's by then there'll be a fellowship in a proper fellowship in metabolic health, which I'd love to, you know, specialize in. But you know, I don't know exactly what my path looks like. What I do know, the one thing I can tell you for certain is I'm not going to go be treating a single organ 
and looking, you know, talking with patients 15 minutes a day, I'm going to find a way to, you know, spend more time with individual patients while also doing research. So probably something like I'll have an academic appointment and conduct research while also having my own private practice and clinic. Um, like some of my role models now who are physicians in metabolic health, uh, they do similar. So I'll, I'll see it evolve. Um, my perspective has changed so many times in the past few years. I have so much more time for it to evolve, especially during my medical education and um, what I learned from my professors, but also my peers. Because the best thing I think about going to somewhere like Harvard is it's not that I get a particularly excellent lecture, but that the peers that I have around me, and I've met some of them now, that they're all just phenomenal people. Um, everybody I've met just it, it is so interesting and comes at something from like, it's such a diverse group. And I'm not talking about race, but like life experiences and perspective. I'm really excited to meet all of them and evolve my model of, of medicine and how I can help it based on what I learned from them. And how are you going to challenge the medical profession with their current thinking against your new learnings? So I, I, for that, I also have parallel paths. On the one hand, I'm going to do what I can as a PhD researcher um, to establish myself as a credible expert in this field. Um, and I, I work hard to do that. Like in the, over the past couple of years, I've had 15 first author peer-reviewed papers in the scientific literature, which is a lot for two years, someone of my age. And, you know, I'm lecturing now quite a lot internationally and, you know, even giving uh, continuing medical education accredited lectures. So I'm, I'm working to, you know, be a, a reputable academic um, and authority in this field. That said, no matter what, I'm still going to be entering as a medical student. Um, and so how to market myself and make people open to the concept of metabolic health without, without turning them off, making them think I'm just some like, you know, arrogant med student. I just, I think I have to gauge the individual that I'm interacting with and, um, and, and then think very carefully about the questions I ask, the data I bring and be able to challenge without appearing challenging. So a few things I have going to help in that effort one is I work very closely with the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners, uh, which is a new group, an international um, uh, group of, well, metabolic health practitioners. It only started in uh, December, really getting up and running, but it's supposed to be, quote, one voice for metabolic health uh, and looking at metabolic health, you know, from all angles. And when I say metabolic health or metabolic medicine, what I mean is basically evidence-based lifestyle, including nutrition interventions that address the root causes of disease, inflammation, insulin resistance, um, oxidative stress, things like that, rather than treating with say, just symptomatic bandages. Um, and so I'm doing a spinoff of that group at, at Harvard, or I'm trying to, I want to do a society of metabolic health students where I bring in really reputable people. And I act as a liaison to have people like we had Dr. Mariella Gallant actually come speak. She did her, um, her training at Harvard and Columbia, and now she runs a low-carb uh, clinic for diabetes over in Tel Aviv, Israel. 
Or we have Dr. Brian Lenskis, who runs a low-carb clinic, come with a patient. Or, you know, this weekend we actually have Dave Feldman coming and talking about his, you know, lipid energy model and uh, lean mass hyperresponders uh, uh, study. So, you know, acting as a liaison to bring really reputable people on is one thing I could do. And then I have to applaud Harvard for the way they have their medical system structured, which is actually also going to be helpful for me, which is, you know, it's a flip classroom. So we get our lectures ahead of time. We watch them on our own time. And then we have what's called case-based collaborative learning, where I get to sit with three of my peers, three med students, and we look over an actual case. And so you can imagine this kind of scenario where I could be like, all right, you know, here's the case. What about this is an alternative explanation or this is an alternative possibility? And just bring those questions so that, you know, by, by posing those questions, I think it opens my peers up to it. And, and my impression is that, you know, incoming medical students, like all doctors, they really want to help, but they also, they can perceive that what we're doing probably isn't working. Like I can make that really obvious to them. They haven't been quote brainwashed, so to speak. Um, and I'll, I'll just approach them as a peer, not as, you know, in some, in some circumstances where appropriate, I will act as an authority, but, you know, as someone saying, like, here's my perspective as, as your fellow, here's what I actually, here's my lived experience. Here are some patients that I've worked with as a metabolic health practitioner. Here's some data, hard data. What if we thought about it this way? What would be the implications? And so more posing the questions, bringing the data than being super evangelical about it, even though there is that, I know everybody has that impulse. And sometimes like even to a two where you're like, this works, just listen to me. I know here are 50 papers and you whack people over the head about with it. But sometimes it's, you know, you have to resist being or saying what's cathartic to say what's productive. So I by no means perfect at that. Maybe I sound, sound wise-ish now, but uh, that's what I aspire to do. And we'll see how it works. I really think that that's, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's about reading the room, you know, like Nick, you just need to read the room. Yeah. And it's going to be hard. Like, I, I, you know, I can I can foresee that there will be obviously times where they'll be going, oh, no, Nick's at it again. But, you know, obviously, you know, your your passion and your vision, you should be proud that you, you have a sense of what your passion and vision is, you know, that true sense of authentic vocation yeah. that you're wanting to make a difference and you can do that locally, as you said, through through the faculty, and you know you're bringing in um, some some well credentialed people like you know Dave and Brian. So, and that's really inspiring to to get that grassroots you know momentum yeah. sort of going. So it's not just you, um, you know, banging the drum that you're actually. Yeah getting the choir in to, um, you know, to, to do that as well. And, so and also, that, that will be quite quite interesting. I also comment, like, I have allies there, so to speak. Like, Dr. Christopher Palmer at McLean at Harvard, um, he gives grand rounds, and he's very pro-keto. Um, and Dr. David Ludwig, like we're in correspondence. He's huge in this space. So there are actually quite a few people, Elizabeth Thiel also, um, who, are, who are there and will serve hopefully as, as my allies and are quite open about it. So, um, you know, it is, it is just to interject the, con the controversy and, and make people realize that, you know, at least what I thought about things like, you know, a low-fat plant-based diet is objectively a healthier diet and, you know, high LDL is objectively bad, this, that, and the other, to introduce those questions. Uh, and then again, ultimately, the ultimate goal is just, 
have this as an option so that when my, you know, generation of doctors is practicing, we can go to a patient and saying, look, there is actually this literature I've seen on low carb ketogenic diets. I think this might be an option for you. Even if you're not an expert or a doctor isn't an expert, it's like, I might not know much about this, but I want to refer you to a colleague, could be me, who actually does know a lot about this. Why don't you listen to them, hear what they have to say, and, and let's just explore this just because what we're doing right now for you might not be working. Um, and we can admit that. So let's try some alternatives. And maybe it won't work. It's possible. doesn't mean it's for everybody. But I want it on the table. And the fact that it's not now is a travesty. Absolutely. But I think you're going to have a huge impact in even if it's in just in your cohort of people that you're training with. So that even if they start to question, doesn't matter whether they believe it or not. But if they have that little niggly question in the back of their head saying, could this be so, they might start to look at it. And I think it's your generation and the one behind you that's going to start making some huge changes in the world. Yeah. But you're, you're, you're sort of leading the way now. I think we're going to get an, hit an inflection point. Um, it's just sad that so many, like right now it's all bottom up where people suffer, they get sick, they go to something unconventional and that population then grows. I think it will hit an inflection point where people actually consider the data um, seriously. And it's all about titrating the message in. Because if you have someone, like if I brought in this weekend, Sean Baker to talk about why you should just eat meat, people are going to be turned off. And I was turned off by that initially too. It's like, this is absurd. Like humans being, car- it's absurd. And then you kind of get into like, actually, like it's not as, it's at least not as absurd as I thought. Um, but yeah, you do have to titrate the message in. But I can see you say 10 years from now at low carb Denver those you know those particular metabolic um, conferences and there you are you're standing up with you know Steve Finney, Jeff Follick, Don D'Agostino you know David David Ludwig as you said you know that you're presenting sort of you know that research as well so I do think that there's dual roles that you know in your clinical practice of which has been informed by your your primary sort of research. Yeah, no, I'm. So I do, I I do see that that's you know headlining, headlining that. I've been invited to those things already, actually. Um, unfortunately, so the first one, I, I'm talking at a low carb international all stars uh, being organized by Paul Mason this uh, this summer and in June to talk about some Alzheimer's research, and then I was going to go speak live in uh, low carb uh, USA San Diego but that's right after we matriculate. So I can't go, but you know, a, a lot of the people you just mentioned, I'm, you know, I, I do see myself as in some sense, a junior, some to, to learn from, but, but also, you know, peers. So I'm writing a case report. In fact, Dom D'Agostino emailed me this morning on a case report we're writing. So all those people I'm, I'm talking with, I, I was on the DL until uh, November, 2020. So, um, which is when I got my, my PhD and now it's, um, well, at least when we're recording, it's like early April. So things have ramped up really quickly um, for me, and it'll be exciting to see where things go in future years. In fact, I, I was emailing Harvard the other day saying like, like, how strict is like classroom things? Like if I get asked to go to like a lecture and I have to travel for it, like, can I go? And they said like, you have to get special permissions, but like, yes. So I, I, I do hopefully see myself actually going, I'm not going to go to, to low carb USA and, uh, this summer just because we're just matriculating but in future this is the kind of thing that i love to do i'm going to continue to do it in every capacity that i can uh 
right now probably have to winnow down my project before med school because I have my, my feet in way too many. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. So in some of those um, actual projects, those side little projects include other publications as well as a cookbook. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so lots of publications, lots of this, that, and the other. But um, one of the really fun projects I had going while I was at Oxford was a uh, ketogenic cookbook. And that was a funny, it was funny how it transpired. Um, I, I met and made friends with a chef there who ran the nicest restaurant in Oxford, the Quad Restaurant, uh, it, just in the middle of Oxford, right across from St. Mary's Cathedral. And um, we started, you know, talking and I ended up working with him in terms of metabolic health. Uh, this is a guy who was, you know, overweight, pre-diabetic, and he ended up just like, dropping weight, reversing his prediabetes, feeling amazing. And uh, then he became interested in keto. So we had a little, you know, relationship and ended up hosting a uh, ketogenic dining event at the restaurant. Um, we invited 60 people, uh, all keto, and there was not a, a single scrap of food left. And I know that because I hate wasting. And I said, if there's anything left over, like a piece of duck skin, like they put it in a bag for me and like, I'll take care of it. Like I'll eat it. Um, and, and at the end of the night, the staff's like, uh, sorry, there's actually no leftovers. Like we can give you the bones from the duck to make into broth, but like, that's it. That's, that's all that's left. People <laughs> loved it. And one of the people that came was Martina Slariova, who is a, uh, a keto cookbook author. And so we hit it off and then we started thinking and collaborating. We're like, what if we blend the science with people that are like chefs and expertise in, in cooking? And, and so basically that's what we did, um, where we came up with recipes together. We came up with a list and then, you know, I proposed some concepts and foods. She made proper recipes. We iterated, we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, pulled in other experts. Some of the people that you just mentioned, like are mentioned in the book have contributed little bits and made it a hybrid that was, you know, a cookbook, but also bringing in the science in really interesting ways through like analogies of like, you know, an evolution of Dave's boat in the bloodstream to explain uh, LDL cholesterol um, or um, little fun facts. So lots of recipes have a fun fact, like here's a salmon recipe. Here's why salmon are pink and why it matters. Oh, you know, here's why we always use sheep and goat cheese and don't ever use buffalo. I mean, don't ever use cow cheese. We can use buffalo, we do use buffalo. Um, so bringing in the fun facts, to engage people. Uh, and of course, there's nutritional content. And we even give things like omega-63 ratio. So it was really fun to put together um, as a, a science-y keto cookbook. But also, the theme we went with was Mediterranean keto. So the title is The New Mediterranean Diet Cookbook. And the subtitle, it says, keto-friendly. Like, it's actually pretty subtle. And the reason we went with that, or at least the, the reason I uh, agreed to go with that, is not because I think the Mediterranean diet is the best one in the world. I think there are a lot of different ways to do a ketogenic diet. I've helped people with carnivore to a vegetarian keto. I think vegan keto is a little bit more difficult, but I help people with vegetarian keto. And the, but there's this, this perception that Mediterranean is amazing. And you can see that in like the US News and World Report, they ranked the 39 diets and uh, or 39 popular diets. Mediterranean was number one, ketogenic diet was number 39. So like you see where people's minds are at. So for me, it's almost like a Trojan horse of sorts. It, 
it gets people interested like oh a ketogenic diet isn't just meat and cheese like you can have this like avocado and macadamia nuts and coconut and like nice piece of salmon it looks very healthy you actually don't people don't even register that it is low carb when you're looking at some of the pictures um it just it just happens to be less than 10% carbs in all whole foods like a healthy clean ketogenic diet and so to to open people up who aren't necessarily open to it or for people who are into it who there's so many people like this and I'm one of those who want to get relatives or friends engaged um but realize that those people have a more standard perspective on what healthy looks like like this looks healthy to them and it just happens to be keto then see how you feel or for patients and I, I deal with a lot of people now when I'm dealing with clients as a metabolic health practitioner who you know their doctor saying oh I don't want you to go keto they have a bias against it. Why don't you try Mediterranean? That comes up all the time. And so if they had a Mediterranean diet cookbook that just happened to be keto. We could see what would happen to those blood markers. So um, I'm really excited about that book. uh, People had just started getting it yesterday, um, like arriving at their homes. And and hopefully it'll be a success because if it is, this is just step one in future projects. And Martina and I already have other ideas out like at Harvard, you know, we could collaborate with like Chris Palmer and David Ludwig to do more of these keto science cookbooks and tools like this. So uh, I, I appreciate people spreading the word about that. If for no other reason, than it's going to support future efforts. And I just want to caveat, um, as you can actually see in a Mediterranean ketogenic diet peer reviewed paper on Alzheimer's disease, I just published two days ago in nutrients. You can see in the conflicts of interest, which I totally acknowledge all of my royalties are going to be going to supporting education and research. Uh, th- I'm not making money off this book. And not that I make a ton anyway, as we're splitting royalties, but like what I do get, you know, I'm, I'm going to put towards uh, research, including things like Sean Baker's running a clinical trial, Chris Palmer's trying to run a clinical trial. And because, you know, it's really hard to get funding for these nutrition trials, unless you're David Ludwig, you know, they require a lot of grassroots efforts. So, you know, Anything I get from this book, which you know somebody buys it, is going to be indirectly going to that, at least my portion. Fantastic. So hopefully people like it. We're interviewing Martina. Next, her episode will be out next week. Oh, cool. So. She's, she's the best. She's the best. I couldn't have imagined a better partner on this kind of thing with somebody who's actually reliable. I'm one of those people who tends to be impatient. It's like, fine, I'll just do it. But she's been phenomenal. Uh, so nothing but good things to say about her. We won't ask her what she thinks of you then. She has a positive opinion as well. Um, well, well, or if we do ask it, it'll be totally off the record. So um, yeah, it'll be unpublished. So right. we'll, we'll just leak it to TMZ or something like that. <laughs> so just just coming back to to you personally and your way of life, yeah. what does a, a your typical day of eating look like? Uh, I generally have two to three meals a day. Um, macro breakdown for me starting high level is probably 78 to 80% fat, about 15, 17% protein, and then about 3% net carbs. Um, in terms of protein magnitude, because I do think people should base their, you know, ketogenic diet around getting sufficient protein is about one gram per pound of body mass. Um, and now if you actually do the math, that means I'm eating a lot in terms of calories. So I do, you know, my caloric intake is generally 
easily in the 3000s, if not above, um, even approaching 4000. So I have high energy needs, but in terms of the, the types of food, I actually do lean towards like seafoody, uh, monounsaturated fat sources. Personally, it's actually quite low fiber. I don't do well with fiber. So my fiber intake is generally below 10 uh, grams per day, but, but things like I'll take oysters and like, like really good olive oil and, and macadamia nut oil and make like pâtés to go with things like pork ribs, which are actually pretty high monounsaturated fat. Um, well-sourced, I get from white oak pastures, a lot of my meat, they don't pay me or anything. I just think that they're, they're good. Uh, I'll, you know, pasture raised hundred percent grass fed, all that. And so, uh, I like, I really like fatty fish. I eat salmon, mackerel, or sardines basically every day. Um, I do love my, uh, a two cheeses like Rookfort, uh, barrel aged feta. So that's always a nice topping on things. And then my macadamia nut oil and the olive oil. I'm also, I'm definitely not saturated fat shy. So things like coconut butter, Artisanas Organic from Whole Foods is my favorite. Again, they don't pay me. I just like the product. Um, certain dark chocolates, um, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, what will I probably eat, say, today? I'll probably have for breakfast, um, like, you know, an, an oyster pate with a bunch of scallops and a lot of olive oil, some feta cheese on it, um, you know, maybe a couple egg yolks as well. For dinner, I'll probably slow roast it's like some pork ribs top it with some olive oil and a little rook for cheese and maybe make a mayo i love to cook uh so play with that maybe i'll make we have a coconut like um tahini halva in our book that's really nice that i like so maybe i'll have that as like a quote dessert mm. and uh yeah i mean that's what i eat right now the thing is my diet is always evolving um, so there have been periods where like I was five months strict carnivore and eating a ton of meat, which like, yeah, I like that too. If I want like a, a burger, I'll have a burger or if I want some lamb, I'll have some lamb. So it's always changing, but that's kind of what my diet looks like right now. And the funny thing, I'll just sidebar. One of the things that really drew me to studying ketogenic diet was a, I'm going to complain about a downside for me and people are going to hate me for this. But when I started keto, I didn't actually think that I would, I didn't, I, I had a very like standard perspective on calories in calories out. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to down this fat. And then I'll like, I'll keep my weight on. Uh, uh, Cause right now like, appetite wasn't a variable because I wasn't hungry anyway. So it was just like, what can I get down? And if I can drink oil, then like I should lose weight and keep my, I had no um, malabsorption. I got those tests, peg 400, et cetera. Like, I wasn't malabsorbing things <laughs> and I couldn't stop from losing weight. I was like, this is so weird. Like, how have I dropped seven pounds yet? I stopped cardio because it just was too much of a caloric expenditure and I'm eating a lot more and I can like try to pound down at least for me and I'm not saying for everybody, but like 5,000 calories a day, 6,000 calories a day for like multiple weeks in succession. And I don't gain weight. Like this is annoying. At least for me at that point, it was annoying. I've since figured out how to recover some weight. Um, so now I'm at a, a place where I'm quite happy, but, but that was like, that was one of the weird things. Like what's going on, I guess, metabolism is a little bit more complicated than we're, we're led to believe. So that's as a sidebar, but I love it. I feel great every day. Did you just say that you were eating, drinking 5,000 calories and still losing weight? 
yeah. And not exercising. I cut out cardio. I was doing, not do, I was not, doing a lot of resistance training. This was at the very beginning. And it wasn't just, it wasn't, definitely wasn't water weight because of the magnitude and the duration over which I lost it. And it was almost more that I didn't gain weight. Let's put it that way. I lost weight at the beginning, probably like 10 pounds um, over several weeks. But the fact that it was such a struggle for me to gain weight would be a more appropriate way to phrase it because there there was a goal for me at one point. It's like, Oh, I want to put on more muscle mass. And I, I eating enough calories was not sufficient for me to gain weight. It just wasn't. And everybody's distinct with respect to this. I mean, there's research on it. There was like a science paper, even in the nineties showing that if you took people and like overfed them by a thousand calories a day, that, changes in just one variable, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, upregulation or not, accounted for a tenfold difference in fat gain. So I'm unique, perhaps. I'm not saying that anybody that goes keto can just guzzle oil. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that the picture is a lot more complicated than, you know, calories in, calories out. It, well, or, or another way to think about it, and I'm stealing this from Gary Taubes, is if you take this equation, delta E, change in energy, equals energy in, energy out, then the misconception is that energy in and energy out are the variables that we control, the uh, independent variables. It's actually the delta E. Our body's hormones are going to set how we store energy, whether we store it, and where we store it, more importantly. And this could be a whole other topic. Right. Um, yeah. So, but just for the purposes of mm-hmm. the listener, just remind them that you are how old? 25. I'm a 25-year-old okay. young male. I'm not that big. I'm five foot uh, six and three quarters. And right now weigh like 125, 130 pounds. So, I mean, that's a lot. In, I'm not like a six foot five. I'm not like Sean Baker. who like, yeah, if he was eating 3,500 calories, like, yeah, sure, fine. Yeah. I'm not. And you're not an over 50s woman menopausal too, Agreed. which I, I hate you. I hate you right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, so, I'm not I think, yeah, prescribing this by any means. I'm just saying it's weird. The fact that it, it can even happen is weird. It makes us, at least made me think. I mean, we know calories in, calories out just doesn't, it does work to us. It works for a, a point short if period you cut, of time. But you can't sustain it. We know that. We know that we have to eat enough food to um, fuel our body and to for it to be able to create all the protein yeah. blocks that it needs and everything that it needs. And, and that's where I think the current diet industry falls down is that it doesn't take that into account. So we know that, but we also have to bear in mind that you're, you're young yeah. and you probably haven't had 30 years of bad metabolic disease. Yeah. You probably had it when you were younger and now you're dealing with it, but you yeah. probably hadn't broken your system as much as say I have or Agreed. Louise may have done. I know, I know. I'm, 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 I think I'm, Louise's system is better than mine. I'm a, I know I'm particular, but if I can just give a neuroscientist perspective on this, just as there's so many things wrong with calories in, calories out, but just two recent pieces of data from like the last year even that, um, so just for example, insulin resistance specifically in the brain in the hypothalamus influences where you store body fat. So there's a study showing that, you know, if people had insulin resistance in their hypothalamus, uh, it predicted weight gain, weight regain after a lifestyle intervention. This wasn't per se keto. It was just a lifestyle intervention. It predicted weight regain at like 24 months and nine years. So people that had insulin resistance in the hypothalamus um, regain weight. But the really interesting thing about this study was how they did. 
So even when you controlled for body mass index, they preferentially gained weight as unhealthy visceral fat, which is the visceral, like the fat sitting in your abdominal cavity. And the reason this is really, really important is because if you just look at the scale and say you just, you know, you just gained some weight, people don't think about is that muscle, is that fat, but also importantly, is that a healthy type of fat? If you just gain subcutaneous fat, it's actually not unhealthy. There are metabolically healthy obese people. You can recapitulate this phenotype in mice by overexpressing GLUT4 where you store is important for the long term, because what then will happen is the visceral fat will inhibit muscle growth. You'll be inflamed and that'll just perpetuate the cycle. And so it's, it's misleading to look at a short-term study where it's like, yeah, I can constrict my, I can, I can restrict calories for a couple of weeks and lose weight. In that circumstance, calories in, calories out works to a T. But how does it work over the long term? Actually, very poorly because of how we partition our fuel. Even if we could measure calories in and calories out, and we really can't. That's another topic. But then just another example of brain physiology is David Ludwig just came out with paper um, in the Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And it was, uh, you know, following on, I think it was a, it was a 20 uh, months, 20 week study. But following on previous literature, he, he um, published showing that there's a metabolic advantage to low carb uh, calories control, but this was a brain scan study. And what they did is they had taken people that had lost weight on a calorie restricted diet and then randomized them to be on equal calorie, equal protein diets that just differed in where their, you know, whether calories were coming from say 60% carbs or 60% fat. And what they found was that if you were on a, a higher carb diet, there was a 43 to 51% increase in blood flow to the brain's reward center, the nucleus accumbens, which is consistent with a whole other body of literature showing that carbohydrates, especially refined carbs, can be addictive, like activate the same centers, cross-sensitize mice to like cocaine and amphetamines. And so you start to see when you look at all these different pieces, and I'm just looking at the brain right now, how over the long term, like this, this isn't a matter of willpower. This is a matter of biology and metabolism. And that's what's so frustrating to see. It's to see people get misled that, oh, you know, this works and I know it works because I see a short-term trial or I tried restricting for a period of time and I did lose weight, but I couldn't keep it up. Therefore I fail and it's my fault. And that leads to like the fat shaming and where we are now. I'll never forget being at, uh, at Oxford and going to the gym, this was before things got really bad, but there was this guy, I don't know his name. I always saw him though. And he was evidently obese and he was the hardest working person there. Like I was there, you know, flexing, showing off young kid, kind of arrogant about my athleticism, doing my chin-ups. There are other people that were like big muscle heads lifting, but you could see like he was kicking butt on the treadmill. He was sweating his ass off. And then he go afterwards and get a, like a leafy green salad with just, you know, lean chicken breast. And I saw him eat it without dressing. I remember seeing that. And, and at that time before all this, I kind of just assumed that, oh, he was going and binging later because it just didn't make sense. But what I realized now through seeing so many of it, it's like people really, really try. They really try. It's not a willpower issue by any means. It's the metabolism that's dysfunctional and you have to correct that first. And um, I don't know. It's just, it, it's sad. Uh, it's just sad right where, where we are.
Um, and to think, and I know you guys probably feel the same way that there, like we have the solution. We actually do. And, and this is where I maybe am getting on my soapbox. Like this, I, I'm so confident that this is a solution. It's, it's really hard to see people suffer like that and put all their willpower basically in the wrong direction or at least an orthogonal direction. If I can change that, that'd be huge. Even in my sphere. I think we're all trying to change that. Yeah. Us with the podcast and you on your journey. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we finish, Nick, can you let the listeners know how they can find you online, contact you, whatever you want them to do, find your book? Thanks. Yeah. Well, quickly, the book can be found on Amazon, uh, the New Mediterranean Diet Cookbook, and you can just put in my name, Norwitz, or newmediketo.com, Barnes & Noble. It's a lot of places. Um, In terms of reaching out to me, the probably the best way right now is is to find me either on Clubhouse if you want to hear my voice and talk to me, which is an app that you can get if you have um, an iOS device. I apologize to Android people. I did not design the platform because I get a lot of hate for that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't you using a more open platform? Like I didn't design it. But um, and Twitter, Twitter is where I'm most active. Um, so right now my DMs are closed just because otherwise I get hundreds a day. <laughs> But if you just at me, if you have a question or you reply to something, I try to be as responsive as I can. I can't promise once med school gets up and rolling, I will be as responsive. But I I do make an effort to reply to everything directed at me, um, which is just an absolute pleasure for me. It's where every spare moment I have where I'm not studying or exercising or eating, it's like it's such a nice thing to be able to, to interact with people. I actually... I can just keep talking, but after the stat article came out that just came out last week, I ended up getting well over 400 emails that weekend. And I set aside on one day, like nine hours just to reply to all of them. And it was just a great day to like hear people share their stories, uh, different experiences. And, and I bank that. And what, what I mean by that is like every story I hear, you know, is somewhere in my mind to get stored such that when I hear a patient, in future say something like it's going to resonate with me or the compositive stories that I've read over the years. So if I have one call to action, I'd like you to buy my book, but that's not it. The call to action would be um, maybe go to see my YouTube video and then comment below uh, with your story. If you have, you know, had a positive experience or not um, just because I, I, I love that repository and I love to hear from people. And so you can, you can bank your story in the comments of my, you know, food is medicine journey. I wish you could do it on stat. They close the comments as well because that's a nice platform, but I do really love to read stories and I will do my best uh, with the time I have to like read them and, and reply to you if I see them. So I, yeah, share if you can, not even with me, just with people around you because people listening here are, you know, the leaders that are leading by example. we like to end the podcast with your top, three tips please top three tips all right well uncharacteristically i don't think i'm gonna make these super nerdy so if you want to engage me and we can talk about how to do targeted carbs or intermittent fasting we can do that but my top tips well my number one tip would be to look at nutrition as an opportunity to improve yourself and as a lifelong journey not as a chore. So don't think like I have to lose 50 pounds and that's my goal and then I'm done and I'm maintenance mode. But rather, 
just just to be observant about how things affect you. And if you can somehow achieve getting to that place where you don't see food as just a gustatory pleasure, but as a gustatory and experimental pleasure, where like you realize everything I'm putting to my body is an opportunity to learn about myself and and improve myself by figuring out what works for me. If you can really capture that mindset, you will succeed. Not necessarily on a ketogenic or low carb diet, but you will succeed once you can capture that mindset. When I work with people, um, when I see that light in their eyes, that they understand that, I know they're going to be successful long term. I just, I know it, and they always are. That's my number one tip. Think about that. Yeah, I love that. And, um, and my second tip, which goes hand in hand with that, is be, you know, educate yourself to the best of your capacity. I believe in informed consent, but I believe in like freedom of choice, but I believe in freedom of informed choice. The more you learn, the more you will have the tools to actually be observant and, uh, you know, evolve your perspective and improve yourself. So that's just an example, because I think an example will be helpful here. It's like, you know, I realized that uh, I actually could have dairy, but I just couldn't have cow dairy. And I realized that because I had studied a little bit about oh, there's this A1 protein in cow's dairy that makes an opioid in the gut. And that's what might be harming me. So I do a little experiment, but I wouldn't have made that observation had I not read something. So spend some time investing in uh, learning about metabolic health from good sources. Things like Diet Doctor has some really good blogs. You could start there. Or if you like my content, you can follow me on Twitter. I put out facts of the day every day to kind of engage people. So learn is the second tip. Third tip is give yourself permission to put your health first, because if you're trying a low carb or ketogenic diet, there are going to be those scenarios inevitably because of societal bias where you're put in an uncomfortable position of like, oh, like, you know, my relative wants me to have the rice or the naan or the whatever. And you might have to say no or no to the alcohol. And so you'll be caught in a predicament potentially where you have to decide health or social awkwardness. And I think people just by gut habit go with having the food to appease people around them. But, but why can't you give yourself permission to put your health first? Because you might have that hard decision to make. And, you know, I know what choice I make now. And sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes if I go out to dinner, like I'll just fast. And I'm like, this is what I'm doing. This is my choice. And, and people can deal with that. So I'm not going to say it's comfortable because it's not always comfortable, but your health matters. Mm. Absolutely f- fabulously so insightful for for one so you so young. Um thank you. I really wish you all the best for your your graduate studies and I've just hit the follow button on your Twitter on your Twitter page thank and you. um so I'll be very excited to um to be following your your tips of the day and uh yeah be watching your journey with with interest. Um thanks so much. Absolutely. Wish you all yeah. the best with your studies. Appreciate it. Thank you both for having yeah, me. Yeah, go out there and, and really, really show them the other side. Show them that there are zebras and not, not just horses. Yeah. Well, there's more zebras than we think. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited because we've always said that the way this is going to become mainstream, low carb and keto, even just as an option, is for it to come from the grassroots up and then 
for the older doctors to die or retire and for the young ones to come in and take over. And it's really heartening to see that even now at 25, Nick is going to be impacting his fellow students, even if it's just getting them to think a little bit differently and to consider, weigh it up. Even if they fall on the side of this isn't for me, at least it's starting to open up conversations and allow those to happen so that we can start to see a change. And then these doctors in turn, as they grow older and start to influence the younger generation, that's when we're going to start to see real movement, I think. It certainly is inspiring for this young man, you know, who is obviously clearly committed to this way of way of living. And based on his own lived experience, is a powerful motivator and driver. And then he's obviously used that in turn to fuel his his quest for knowledge. And now that quest for knowledge is moving into, as you said, clinical practice. You're right. I think he's, there's going to be, it's not going to be easy for him, I can tell you that. Medical school curriculums are obviously regulated. You know, they're accredited. So there are obviously standards of care. And as we know, you're in the UK, I've been in Australia. We've both visited the US, how challenging the US healthcare system is, that this is something that he's going to have to think and navigate and negotiate his way through. But luckily, he's he's got the support of his parents, you know, both are as, you know, very learned, learned people as well. So he's clearly got his, his network of support around him. Yeah. And he's created those networks of people within the university, within the low-carb world. So... I've got great hopes for him and he might have to learn to bite his tongue in lectures and not say anything, but he could still, you know, he can still have an influence on other people. Absolutely. And yeah, that's something that he discussed already that he said, this is, you know, what the couple of the strategies for himself to, to be asking questions as opposed to being confrontational. And that's where we know the vested interests of particular individuals. And particularly, you can understand that some of these professors may well have had a 30-year academic career. They're heavily invested in a knowledge that they have been researching and teaching. And, you know, he, who was this young upstart? What has he got to say? You know, why is mm. he asking these difficult questions? But again, as you said, it's, it's how he asks the questions that will, you know, win friends and influence people. Yeah. And I think, you know, his approach is he's he's not even looking to change the minds of the lecturers, but to get his fellow peers to start considering and thinking and and rather than just following the dogma that's been laid down for years is to start thinking, well, what if there is another way? What would that look like? So I think it's going to be interesting for him. And let's remember what Jen Unwin was sort of saying, you know, that this gives people hope. And this is really about there are other options. Let's have a look outside the square. You know, let's inspire people to be hopeful that there are solutions to, to what has been mainstream standards of care, which have failed. You know, it's been yeah. treating the symptoms, as we know. Mm. Fabulous. Where can we get the show notes for Dr. Nick's episode? So the show notes will be at www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero four four. Great. 
Hey, Jackie. You know, when you were starting out with keto, you probably had loads of questions. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Don't you wish you just had someone who was able to give you just the simple answers to all those questions about macros, electrolytes, reading nutrition labels and sweeteners? Absolutely, yeah. Well, we want to have an episode where you, dear listener, can AMA, which stands for Ask Me Anything. You'll be able to ask us anything using a Fabulously Keto webpage where there is a contact form and you could submit your questions, which we will answer on these episodes. The contact page is fabulouslyketo.com forward slash AMA. Whether you're just starting out or experienced in your journey, we will happily answer your questions. You don't have to be new to keto, so if you're further along in your journey and have questions on being stuck on a plateau or a stall, then feel free to submit your questions as well. Just head over to www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash AMA. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know that you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.